Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, October 24th, 2008. I'm Alana Ranke. Last week, the Imagine Science Film Festival kicked off with a full house at the Academy. Today, we join NPR's Ira Flato as he moderates the discussion on science in fiction film and opens the film festival running through October 30th here in New York City. Participating in the discussion is Darcy Kelly, a neuroscience professor at Columbia and a scientific advisor for the Tribeca Film Festival, Ari Handel, a neuroscientist and screenwriter of the movie The Fountain, Sidney Perkowitz, a physics professor at Emory University and author of the book Hollywood Science, and Billy Shebar, the screenwriter for Dark Matter, which won the 2007 Sundance Sloan Award. I want to know whether you've got your tickets for the hottest science and art series in town. I'm talking about SNC's Science of the Five Senses series, of course. Five hot events with some of the world's leading sensory scientists and artists at the New York Academy of Sciences, which, might I add, has quite the view. Get touchy-feely on November 3rd when the series kicks off with the science of touch. Buy your tickets to one event or get a package deal online at www.nyas.org slash five senses. Let's begin this discussion talking to Darcy. As someone, as an observer outside of a film who critiques films about science, what do you look for in films? And, and, and we're concentrating tonight on science in fiction, not the fiction in science. Well, part of it is actually the problem of perception, right? You look to see how scientists are portrayed. There's a kind of very standard way of portraying them, the creator of Frankenstein, the pointy egghead, the people out of touch with their emotions and reality, and anybody who's ever been in the lab knows that that's not entirely true. But the main thing I look for is whether you can take the passion that people feel for their work in science and make it part of the motivation for the film or the play or the TV pilot. It's one of the hardest things to do. I mean, normal passion, you know, competition, life, death, love, and loss, we're all familiar with that. But the allure of ideas, the extraordinary excitement when the experiment works, the crashing depression when the, you know, animals escape or the, you know, the favorite theory goes to the floor, these are motivations that are novel that could inform science and science writing, and that's really what I look for. You review a lot of films for the Sloan Foundation, for Tribeca Film Festival. Do you see any patterns? Do you see any motivations? Can you spot any trends lately in in where these films are headed or where they're coming from? Well, the problem, which you brought up yourself, is always the question of, you know, are you a scientist turned filmmaker, filmmaker turned scientist? You know, it's very hard to find people who are trained in science that are spectacularly good writers of of fiction, and that's actually more unusual than the other. So how do you bring people into science? It's really hard. And one typical way is what I call the biopic way. You know, you pick some compelling story, Alvin Edison or Madame Curie, and those can be very effective, but they're not effective if they're just standard. But it is one way of drawing people in because it's the life of a scientist and through somebody's life you can get at that passion. The least 
frequent thing that happens is to get a screwball comedy about science. Those would be the best. So on that spectrum, there are ones in between. The hardest things are you know, contemporary plays or, or movies about uh, life now in science, where the idea comes from no place. And uh, it's not always scientists who do that. I was on a, a panel that looked at various plays and that promoted a play of a woman called Cassandra Smith who wrote a play called Relativity, which is about a theory called melon and science. And her lab scenes, I don't know where she got it from, but she got them exactly right. It's a very powerful, very interesting play. So it's possible to do that, I think, even if you're not a scientist. The question is, how can we make it happen better and more effectively? Good answer, and we'll get back to some more of these issues. I want to, let's, let's see if we can get into watching some of these films and talking to some of the filmmakers. And I, I know uh, Ari's here. I'm going to skip over to Billy first to talk about Dark Matter. Billy wrote the uh, screenplay for Dark Matter, uh, feature film directed by, I'm going to get the name wrong, Sean Jingzeng. Zheng. Zheng. There you go. It was close enough. It's like <laughs> being on the radio. And the film won the Alfred uh, no, the, uh, Sloan Foundation Prize at Sundance in 2007. Tell us about your film. Dark Matter is a story about a young Chinese cosmologist who comes to America to get his PhD, and he is kind of uh, really compelled by the subject of dark matter, and his work sort of brings him into conflict with his mentor, uh, who has a different theoretical model than than he has. It's about academic politics, it's about cultural politics, it's about um, a young scientist with a very promising idea who really gets squashed by... American academic politics and his failure to, to grasp them. And uh, what you're going to see this clip, um, there's a woman who kind of uh, is kind of an advocate for Chinese students and Chinese culture at the university, played by Meryl Streep. And what you're going to see is a scene where she's organized kind of a Chinese cultural evening where she brought in these performers to do Chinese opera and acrobatics. And at the end, and, and you, you're see, the scene comes in at after that's over, and the, and she's kind of toasting the new Chinese new crop of Chinese students at this um, fictional university in Utah, and um, and then uh, you know you'll see from there, and we'll, we'll talk about it after. Okay, roll. Uh, I would like to propose a toast to our wonderful performers. Thank you, thank you, and to our new Chinese students who have made their own journey west. We'd like to welcome you to our country. On behalf of Chinese students, so lucky to come to America, the beautiful country. May we all find our dream here. Therefore, we make this toast to our new American friends, Gandhi, uh, after bottoms. Oh, I'm looking at the dark matter. Oh, you mean space? It isn't all space. There's stuff we can't see, even with the most powerful telescope. But we know it is there. Two immediate questions that come to mind. Okay. One is. 
How the heck do you get Meryl Streep in a movie about science? <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to imagine the pitch that you have to give to the studio or whomever you're pitching this idea to. How do you say, you know, I'm going to get Meryl Streep for that spot? Well, actually what happened was one of the uh, producers who optioned the script early on was a friend of Meryl's. I guess they had kids uh, in the same school together or something like that. So at the time there was a character of Joanna, but it was, you know, a pretty small cam- character. So they immediately said, can you... You think more about this character and develop it into, you know, something something bigger, something um, more central to the story. So I did that, and then they gave her the script, and she apparently loved it. Did she have to learn all about dark matter beforehand? I don't know how much she needed to for her character, but certainly, you know, Aidan Quinn, who played the role of the the mentor, had to get himself up to speed pretty quickly. When you make a film like this that talks about dark matter, does it enter your thinking that? You're going to get more people to know about dark matter than all the textbooks that are written today if enough people go to see this film. You know, I never, that, that didn't really specifically occur to me, except that I found the whole idea of dark matter just fascinating. Initially, this was to be a film really that explored culture clash and academic politics and the experience of a young Chinese scientist at a university. And, but one of the early on, one of the decisions that we had to make is what, what's his field of study going to be? And I, I had taken um, in college one of these sort of physics for poets kind of classes uh, about cosmology, and I just loved it. The idea that you could theorize about, you know, and actually come to conclusions using, you know, evidence of things you see through a telescope, you know, how the universe began, the idea that you're seeing this distant, this light that is actually light that's traveled, you know, for millions of years, really grabbed my imagination. I thought, okay, cosmology, you know, was, was an interesting field, and I kind of went back to reading a lot of material. Probably the most inspiring book I read is called Lonely Hearts of the Cosmos by Dennis Overby, who happens to be here, but I'm not saying it because he's here. In the course of doing that reading, I came across this dark matter problem, which I guess has been around since the 30s. You know, the idea that there's this unseen stuff, that actually the universe makes no sense. You know, spiral galaxies like ours, which are, are rotating, if all that was there was the luminous matter, the stars that we can see, then by the laws of, of physics, it, they ought to just fly apart. And so there has to be something that we can't see that's there exerting this gravitational pull to hold it together. This idea just... I just was floored by it. And the idea that it still was unsolved and nobody knew what dark matter was is just a very exciting idea for me. And as I began to work with it and say, okay, this, this guy is, uh, you know, our student is going to make that his passion, the whole metaphorical potential of that idea began to unfold. And the idea that you know, dark matter is also a brilliant metaphor for these invisible foreign graduate students who, who you know, bring greater glory to their, their American professors through the work that they do. But even more than that, it, it's a metaphor for everything that we don't know about each other. It's about the dark matter that's in our minds and in our experience and the way that we think we know somebody, but we really don't. And, that, and this is a story about that ends tragically in a, a campus killing, and it has to do, you know, but this character commits uh, a killing, and the killings in the end. And it's that's really, another strict definition of dark matter. It's yeah, a dark matter. It is. That's, that's true, too. But the idea that, you know, in, in these instances of the campus violence that's happened, there's always been this, this sense of, you know, the individual at the time, you know, people knew, knew this person was sort of a, maybe a bit asocial, shy, but no one ever contemplated that they had this violence within them. Only in hindsight did people sort of connect the dots and say, ah, oh, you know, in, in hindsight I could see that coming. And I felt that, you know, this idea of dark matter then, you know, really... Was it, it really became the guiding metaphor 
in writing the script and the guiding metaphor in the film. Does that, does that turn you on now to other science ideas that might be good film topics? No, I've always been really taken by scientific topics. I, I'm always amazed by the way in which scientific language, which is really designed to describe the physical world, has this amazing sort of metaphoric content with human experience. It always, it always struck me since I was in high school. I mean, actually, it's an embarrassing thing. In high school, I wrote a, a love poem to my girlfriend that was, that was sort of equated love and electromagnetism. And it, was, and it was like, you know, electrons whizzing when we kissed and, you know, better be careful, you know, or else the reaction will reach equilibrium and, and the love will die. And, you know. So there was, the inner geek, there was the inner geek in you waiting to find expression in film somewhere. No, no, needless to say, we broke up shortly after that. No. Um, you know, I, I'm just attracted to that material, and, and you know, um, so what can I say? Okay, well, let's, let's move on, because there's a lot to talk about. Let's talk to Ari Handel, who was trained as a neuroscientist to better make films, and he graduated from Harvard with a degree in biology and went on to get his Ph.D. in uh, neuroscience from NYU. Tell us about your film, what we're going to see. Well, The, the Fountain is um, it's, it's a real sci-fi film. It's not factual. It's about the search for the fountain of youth in three time periods, uh, a conquistador in Mayan Yucatan in the 1500s, a modern-day neuroscientist who's looking for a cure for cancer because his wife is dying of cancer and he's trying to save her life, and an astronaut in the deep, deep future who's living forever and is traveling to a star that's about to go supernova. So it's, it's a little out there. And I, th- this clip is, I picked it for a couple of reasons. One is it's the closest thing in the film to the lab work that I did, although um, the closest isn't that close, um, it, which is the second reason I chose it, which is that it's got plenty of silly mumbo-jumbo in it, like some sci-fi films, and it's also got plenty of stuff that's a little more real, so it kind of can demonstrate in some ways how trying to fit a scientific world into the needs of a dramatic world where you have to compromise and how that kind of stuff works. So. Okay, let's see the fountain. No good. Great specificity, but no suppression. When you run techno babble in a film like mm-hmm. that, do you check it to see if it's accurate or do you just think the audience is never going to figure it well, out? Well, because that's my own techno babble, I try to get it somewhat accurate. Yeah, you try and make it somewhere near feasible. But it's always slightly embarrassing if there's a real science. Darcy, I, I know you're laughing because I know that you've been asked to, to uh, for, for stage productions at least, to, to talk about the laboratory setups and things like that. How do you, how do you feel as a scientist who gets approached by it? Well, it all depends on how goofy it is. <laughs> if it's only a little bit goofy, if it gets the kind of tension, which this clip does, right, if it gets the tension. I, I think if the spirit's there, you don't quibble too much. But, you know, knowing what the spirit is, that's yeah. the trick. And this had that spirit. I think you've answered my question already, but I'll ask it again about whether it's easier to be the scientist who becomes a filmmaker or the filmmaker has to study the science. You, how did you make that leap? Why, why did you start out as a scientist in some leap? Well, I was all over the place. So, I, I mean, I thought I was going to be a Russian literature major, and then I thought I was going to be an English... Well, first I thought I was going to be a math major, and then a Russian major, and then an English major, and then a neurobiology major, and then I wanted to be a science journalist, and I wanted to be in science education, and then I went to grad school to get a PhD, and then I realized <laughs> I was stuck there and I didn't know what I wanted to do, and then I left after I got my PhD, and then I started writing this movie because I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> so honestly, and here I am. Just keep fun. 
You think you stop now? Is, is the wheel stop spinning a little we'll, bit? We'll see. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you like it? How much different in the creative process of thinking as a scientist is it in making a film? Well, the truth is being a scientist is a very creative process, which a lot of people don't understand. And I, I actually wasn't that great at the creativity part of being a scientist. I was pretty good at doing this stuff. But science, you have to figure out what questions to ask. And that's just as hard as figuring out what your story is going to be. Science is a kind of storytelling as well. You have data and information and experiments and it doesn't all add up into a perfectly neat package. So you find a story that explains a bunch of it, and hopefully it's a compelling story. Uh-huh. And if you're good at telling that story, um, then you probably can influence people to believe it. So, so the storytelling is what you had to learn. I think it's most. all. I mean, I yeah. think everything is storytelling. Honestly, it's yeah. my bias. But so that part, I felt transferred well. In some ways, being a scientist in the film industry. There's something nice about it because you tell people in Hollywood that you have a PhD and they get frightened that you <laughs> they don't they they don't realize that it, they could have done that too if they just were willing to spend eight years underground. <laughs> did Did you realize somewhere along the line in, in his journey through all these different professions that you had this interest in film that you were heading to? Well, I always loved movies, sci-fi movies, and sci-fi books, any kind of movies. So, so what's the biggest challenge you faced? That, or there's something in your learning experience that was the hardest thing for you to learn that, that you had to switch gears from being a scientist? When I went from one to the other. Yeah. I mean, science, I can imagine it's money, because scientists are always looking for money, too, and as a filmmaker. That stuff's the same. <laughs> um, the filmmaking part is much more collaborative, and you become a cog in a huge machine. First of all, it took us seven years to get the film made, so that part's a little bit different, just to start making the movie. Mm-hmm. Oh. Fighting and fighting and oh. fighting and fighting. How did you get it sold? I mean, that, that this is an idea that they'll, we, they'll buy. We ended up resorting to shame. shame. Shaming people. We said, you promised, you would, we promised if we got you, you know, this kind of movie star to, you, you promised you Billy, would. Billy, you're laughing. You've been there? You've been there with the shame? <laughs> no, we worked and we worked and we, kept, we believed in it and we pushed and we pushed and we pushed and we kept showing it to people and this is a movie that a lot of people feel very strongly about positively and a lot of people feel very strongly about negatively so we just kept going out there with it and working on it until we found enough people who believed in it to get it made. The thing that was interesting about this, it really is science fiction it's very fictional, it has fantastic elements to it but one of the things I'm really interested in was doing in this film was having a main character who is a scientist and his problems are problems of being a human being, not, not of being a scientist. He just happens to be a scientist. And it, it, being a scientist is integral to the plot of the film, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have to be. So there's lots of mumbo-jumbo in that scene, right? Great specificity, but no suppression, whatever. That kind of... It's silly. I mean, it means something. If you figure, It wouldn't mean something completely crazy. But, it, but the relationship between these graduate students and postdocs and the, and the surgical tech and their PI who, when they see that he's having doubts and doesn't know what to do next, they're sort of in awe of him and a little scared that he doesn't know what to do. That stuff is real and comes from the lab. All right, let's move on to, uh, to Sidney Perkowitz, who's professor of physics at Emory, and he's uh, recently wrote the book up there, uh, Hollywood uh, Science, 
a journey through the best and worst science-based movies of all time. Are there a lot of stinkers out there? Boy, there are a lot of stinkers. <laughs> but I also found more, at least good pieces of films than I thought I would. So that was a surprise to me. So you're going to do a presentation tonight of some of the best and the worst? I'm going to show one that I'll let the audience, I'll let the audience draw its own <laughs> conclusions. But I will talk about the difference between what a Hollywood film can do well and what an independent film can oh. do well, which is what this festival is about. I'm going to talk about Hollywood science and independent science on screen. And the reason I thought about the subject at all, uh, as uh, you heard Ira say, is last year I wrote a book called Hollywood Science. I spent about uh, 12 months looking at 123 films, mostly science fiction, but also some documentaries and some biopics. And then I wrote about how those films handle science and scientists. And the majority of those films are from Hollywood. I consider myself a recovering or lapsed scientist. I turned from a scientist into a writer. One of the great things about writing a book is you learn about a subject. If you look for science on screen, as presented by Hollywood, it's 99% science fiction. First science fiction film was made in 1902. And since then, about 1,400 science fiction films have been made and released in the US. That's about one a month. In addition, as Darcy mentioned, there are some biopics and some documentaries, but not many. It's mostly about science fiction. And since uh, two particular films, 2001 and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Hollywood science fiction has clearly become a major cultural force. And like any cultural trend, it has a good side and a bad side. So I want to start with the things that Hollywood does very well in a film. First of all, they're incredibly entertaining. People love them. They make tons and tons of money. If you look at the 50 all-time top-grossing films, 17 or 18 of them are science fiction. Secondly, you cannot beat Hollywood in the quality and imagination of its special effects. There is no other medium around today, I think, that can put us in the middle of an imaginary world the way Hollywood can do. That's a phenomenal ability. Third, not always by design, but simply because the ideas are there, these films reflect what's going on at the intersection between science and society at the time the film is made. In the 50s, there were lots of films about nuclear warfare, radiation producing giant ants, anything that had to do with nuclear power. More recently, we see films about such issues as genetic engineering and uh, global warming. And since so many people see these films, these issues are willy-nilly presented to millions and millions of people. And that has an effect, as I'll show you in, in a little bit. And finally, an aspect that I think is not emphasized enough, even a really bad science fiction film, the science is all wrong, the characters are cardboard, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, will inspire some kid out there to become a scientist someday. There's anecdote after anecdote of major scientists, a man who just won the Nobel Prize in Economic Science, Paul Krugman, says he became an economist because he read Isaac Asimov's foundation series, and that convinced him that a social scientist could predict what society is going to do. Now, what do these films do badly? Number one, the obvious thing, which, which anyone in the sciences notices and, and groans over, they misstate or hype scientific facts. I think more importantly are the, are the other, are more important are the other two issues. They don't really portray the texture of science, the process and the culture of science how it's done. You heard some comments about this before, and I fully agree. And they're not much into character development. My impression is that Hollywood filmmakers often are so taken with the special effects that they forget about the people. 
And since the average American has never met a research scientist, it's easy to characterize scientists as caricatures. And there are only three caricatures, heroes, nerds, or villains. Now, I picked a, uh, a film trailer that exemplifies many of the issues I talked about. It has great special effects. It uh, has two heroic scientists played by Dennis Quaid and Ian Holm. And it touches on a major issue, global warming. So let's roll it, if you'll be kind enough to start at the laptop, and let's see what we think of it after. So day after tomorrow gets credit, at least for me, just for presenting the issue and also for its great special effects. In fact, it won awards. But its science is hyped, and the scientists are superheroic. There's another extreme, and that is a science documentary. This is Al Gore's film about the same subject, global warming, called An Inconvenient Truth. Most of the climate scientists say that was a very good job as far as the factual content went, but it does not have much of a story. There is one very important point to make, though. An Inconvenient Truth grossed about $45 million, which for a documentary is insanely wonderful. It makes it the second or third highest grossing documentary ever. What do you think day after tomorrow grossed? $540 million. So using the money not as a measure of merit, but only as a measure of how many people have seen the film, 12 times as many people roughly saw the fictional version as saw the real version. One of the criteria for a good science-based film one, a good science-based film is not a science lecture. But if it has some science in it, it should pay some respect to the science. You can't make up all the science in the film, only some of it. There has to be a kernel of an idea someplace. Second, it certainly doesn't have to deliver many scientific facts. It may be more important if it presents scientific ideas that affect us all, as a day after tomorrow did, or to show how and why science is done, or to present scientists as people, which almost everyone on this panel has mentioned, maybe the single most important issue. A film can work if it combines some level of science with a dramatic human story. And I think any filmmaker would agree that's the skeleton of a good film. We've had some very, I mean, I'm trying to think of great science fiction films that I like that didn't have very much of any violence in them, um, and, and they're remaking now. Like um, I'm thinking of the trailers I've seen for The Day the Earth Stood Still. Mm -hmm. This was such a small little piece when it, the original was such a beautiful little film and, and was such an anti-violent film, even though they had Klaatu and whatever in there. And now they've turned it totally around, at least from the trailers that I've seen. Uh, it's a picture, I, it, it's a still from that movie that I picked for the cover of this book because people purely love that movie. There no two ways about it. The special effects are laughable by today's standards, but it has a message. It also has a kindly scientist, a guy who looks like Einstein but is more involved yet with making the world a better place. So that film is a success for a lot of reasons. Let me make another point. Um, as I, I said, that film had a message, and it was deliberately constructed that way. I don't think we see much of that now. Day after tomorrow, I can't get inside the head of the producer, the writer, and the director. I don't believe they said to themselves, we're going to perform a public service here. I think what they said was, this might be a money-making film, and the public service was a side effect. Yeah, the, the interesting part about the kindly scientist, I noticed that also in the remake of War of the Worlds. The original movie, the hero was that scientist. Yes. Uh, what was his name? Um, Gene Barry. Ooh, yeah, I pulled Gene it Barry. out. I don't believe right. it. 
Uh, and then, but now we had a, what, a steel worker who was escaping in the, in the remake. I mean, why couldn't we have a scientist That's, back? It's the first thing I noticed. There's just about no science at all in, in the remake of uh, War of the Worlds. Moreover, if you go back and look at the original War of the Worlds, there's a hell of a lot of scientific exposition yeah. in it. They talk about how come Martians are weaker than Earthlings. They uh, come up with a, with a triangular vision system for the Martians, which is very imaginative. The, and people in those days would sit still for actors talking. doesn't happen much anymore, so that's a major difference, I think. I don't think if you had seen the first one, you would have understood how the Martians died in the second one. That's right. There really was no exposition of what killed the Martians in the remake. Well, if you knew, you know, the common call. Well, Tom, Tom Cruise killed him, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got a lot of ideas to chew on in the, in the film festival, so go out there and enjoy the, the uh, film festival, Imagine Science Fiction Film Festival, and... Uh, Thank you all. Thank you for, to Darcy Kelly and to Ari Handel, to Billy Jabbar and Cindy Berkowitz. Thanks for listening. You love Science in the City podcasts? Support them by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit scienceinthecity.org and click Join NIAS. Or buy a package deal to the Science of the City 5 Census Series and get a free Science in the City membership. Did you know you can subscribe to Science in the City podcast on iTunes and get our newest story downloaded every week automatically to your iTunes library? Search Science in the City in your iTunes search bar. If you have any questions or comments about our show, we would love to hear your feedback. So please send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. If you want to know more about Science in New York, visit scienceandthecity.org. Dot org. We'll see you next week.